to uh, Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am your host, Danielle Hanley, and joining me on the other line, the secret wife of a KGB operative, John McMahon. Hi, Danielle. I'm honored. I'm honored to have that status in my life, even if it's only for this one episode. Amazing. The minute that started to unfold on screen, I was like, well, I have my intro. Great. Um, had, Had it been my turn to do the intro, you would have been... Uh, she used a produce truck to get away from the FBI. Oh, that's a good one. So that's, that's a really good like one. A half a step below. I feel like we're we're bringing it with uh, with this episode. I, I feel think good so about too. It. I, I I adore this episode. This is Americans season one episode three entitled Gregory, directed by Thomas Schlama and written by Joel Fields and others. And uh, Danielle, you informed me that our director of this episode is a well-known TV director. Yeah. So I um, admittedly did not look this up before we started sort of doing the planning. And then when I saw Tommy Schlamy's name on, which I love the rhyme, um, <laughs> I saw it on our on our Google Doc. I was like, oh, I got so excited. And you were like, oh, okay. That's a, you know, int- what are you excited about? And he directed a number of episodes of The West Wing, which is like one of my favorite shows. Um, but yeah, so it's exciting that, he is directing on this show and also that this is the episode he's directing. Mm, Okay. I might want to hear then about some of what you think to be like the directorial impulses throughout the episode. I have literally watched the West Wing zero times in my life. (laughs) As in I've never seen an episode, which basically expels me from much of political science. It expels me from a bunch of the friendships that I'm a part of. One of my colleagues shows the West Wing in his classes in my department. Ooh. Like it's a, it's a, it's a fact of my life that definitely puts me on the outside. I might be the excluded within, if you will. Oh, Cena Kramer. Um, I, you know what? I think there was a moment in my life where I could have really gone down that path, being the political scientist showing the West Wing in my classes. Um, but then I became a political theorist. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then you're mostly expelled from doing that. So, <laughs> and I have to like expelled from political science. <laughs> and then I have to like whisper to people that I still love the West Wing, even mm. and I still love Josh Lyman, even though it's like insanely like liberal and and just like a lot of things that as a theorist my eyes have been open to, but I'm like, but 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 it's so good. <laughs> Yeah. I, the open question is if I were to actually go watch The West Wing, if I'd be able to tap into any of the enjoyment that so many of my colleagues fear, uh, feel. I think instead I'm actually too far gone. If you want, I can recommend a podcast that you can just listen to <laughs> about The West Wing. <laughs> right, because a defining characteristic of my life is that I listen to podcasts oh. about shows that I've never watched and never will watch. No, wait, actually, I'm confusing myself with my dear friend and co-host, Daniel. <laughs> 
I sort of aggressively listen to podcasts about shows that I do not watch. And to my understanding, this is one of the core areas upon which your sisters base their reads of you. Honestly, I was talking to my sisters tonight before we hopped on here, and I, like, made mention of the word podcast, and they were like, oh, were you, like, hanging out with your friends? Were you, was it about another show? Oh, we were listening to a podcast about Euphoria, so you didn't watch the episode? And I was like, no, this time I actually watched the episode. And then I was telling my sisters how I was, like, watching the latest episode of Euphoria while doing a Peloton workout last night. And my sisters are like, that's why you have to listen to a podcast because you, you're watching it and you're not paying attention to the boot camp you're doing. I'm like, who <laughs> It's like, turn the resistance up. I can do that and also see what Rue is doing on the screen. Anyway, there's a lot of reading of Danielle by her <laughs> sisters, who Danielle. our listeners will get to meet. That's I can't wait. That's gonna happen in season one. We make that we make yeah. that promise to you right now. Do you wanna read in a different sense the IMDB summary for oh. this episode? Wow, you really are a pro. Uh, I, I love nothing more than a terribly amazing segue. I'm into it. Okay, so here's the IMDB summary for season one, episode three of the Americans. Gregory, Elizabeth's lover, helps them make contact with Robert's widow despite an FBI team. Gabriel's replacement shows up. Philip then makes a dangerous buy of information. So as is the name of this episode, right? The defining characteristic of it is indeed the character of Gregory played by Derek Luke, who is, I think one of the best non main cast characters in season one in the Americans in general, regardless of the perspective that it brings. There is just, so much that he brings out of Elizabeth and Philip that yeah. I think really raises a lot of questions about their relationship to one another, their relationship to spycraft, their relationship yeah. to love and sex and how that plays into spycraft. All of these themes of the domestic and the spying that we're interested in, the themes of the domestic and nationalism that we're interested in. So I this is this is a really wonderful episode. I, I like fully agree with that. And this is my first time watching this episode. And I was really taken aback by how just like powerful Gregory as a character was. And I think you said it, you, you said something just now that really speaks to me, which is like the way that he brings things out of Philip and Elizabeth and, and like brings parts of their relationship to the surface. We've like already been talking about the way in which some of these ideas have been simmering over the last couple of episodes. And in this episode, I think because of sort of like the love triangle that is at the center of this episode, where so much of the stuff that's been simmering like explodes on the surface in ways that I think are really like provocative. And what I appreciate about Luke's performance as Gregory is that he both brings these things out of Elizabeth and indeed the show even calls attention to what he brings out of Elizabeth and her at the end of the episode, like Philip, here is how uh, Gregory and I met. Here's what he meant to me then. Here's what he means to be to me now. Here is why this is something that is different and has a certain kind of affect or passion to it. And so it calls attention to that. And yes, Gregory is bringing these things out of Elizabeth and out of Philip the whole episode. But also, he's an incredibly and instantly well-developed character yes. and acted as such in his yes. own right. 
Yeah. And like we, I, I think it's important that we like, we meet him in his neighborhood, mm-hmm. surrounded by his people. We're in his apartment. Like he's not some transient figure. We sort of like, you know, we meet in a hotel room or like in, even in like Elizabeth's car, right? Yeah. Which is like a way that we've met other, other characters that we might assume are playing a similar role. That's we, an excellent point. I hadn't thought about that, that we actually see Gregory's home, right? We don't, yeah. we, we only get Annalise in a hotel room, in Phillip's some car. other place, in Philip's car, right? We only get the uh, person in the attorney general's office in a hotel room and in the bar in season yeah. one. So you're right. The, even the fact that we get to meet Gregory while he's playing chess with other people, his yeah. friends or whatever. Um, and then they go back to his apartment does mark him off as different. Yeah. And also that, you know, that Elizabeth walks into that setting and is like comfortable there. And mm-hmm. it's clear that she's, that this isn't her, the first time that she's walking into these spaces that there is like, she has a level of familiarity with with all of it that sort of gives us a chance to be like, okay, this is there's something else here. I think I said to you when we were when we were just chatting about the episode before we got on is that in thinking about minor character of the week, I was like, Gregory is an amazing character, but I, I there's something about about the depth of the performance and of the relationships that to me was like, he's not a minor character. He doesn't actually fall in that, in that umbrella for me. Yeah. And I like the point you make about, it's clear that Elizabeth has been in Gregory's apartment before and that the apartment itself has meaning to Gregory, of course, but also to Elizabeth and the way that the show introduces that particular dynamic of their relationship is the way that Elizabeth comments on a new piece of art that is on Gregory's ceiling that she hadn't seen before. And this is a connection I hadn't made until now, but the art that's on the wall, and it maybe even was the same real world artist who made the art. I'd be interested to actually look that up and perhaps Mm -hmm. I should have done that before we got on the podcast, but there's a key plot line later it's episode or season five or season six where there is an artist in the show and the question of the art that's made and what that's doing with regards to particularly elizabeth's character and psychic and emotional state will become particularly salient so i think your emphasis on yes elizabeth has clearly been here before the reason we know that is because of the art does so much to saturate their relationship and it sets up what is one of my favorite scenes in the entirety of all of the Americans. And that is the conversation that Gregory and Elizabeth have on his, on and around his couch in the living room. um, The first time that we meet Gregory in this episode. I mean, I just have to say like for the third episode of a series, like this is a banger. (laughs) Yeah. Like there's there I think something that I'm coming to really appreciate about this show, which I I have not necessarily appreciated in TV shows before, but it is part of like what I love about like fantasy novels and Harry Potter and, and things like that is just like the attention to detail and the like the subtlety of it all. And you can I I this summer taught my sister like the the 
um, the metaphor of like Chekhov's gun. Mm-hmm. And so now this sister will text me like, oh, Chekhov's uh, tuna fish sandwich, right? Like, <laughs> like about like an episode of Below Deck. <laughs> <laughs> really like highbrow, lowbrow over, over here in the Hanley house. <laughs> um, and I can just, I like, it's interesting that you are talking about art becoming something important, like a few seasons down the road, because like, I think part of what is pulling me into this show so much is like, wanting to absorb it because I know that things are going to come back later. Like such is the nature of Spycraft, such is the nature of a show that is like dealing in the sort of like move between the past and the present in like a, in a, in an interesting way. And, and so like the, some of the stuff is really subtle, but I can see they're seeding things here and it'll be interesting to see which which and where those seeds grow and which and where they don't. Yeah, and that's interesting that you frame it that way because when I think of like the details that are most poignant or most significant to me about their conversation in that particular scene, it's the immediacy of Mm -hmm. the moments between them Mm -hmm. that really kind of speaks to me on an aesthetic level and an emotional level and a plot level too. I mean, there, just think about all of the things that are happening in that scene and the, again, small details and the minutia, right? Their faces, incredible. This show, this show in general is, I believe this is the critic Shanti Collins, one of his favorite points, if I'm remembering correctly, that all of the actors are incredible face actors without ever saying a word in a deep conversation. So that's going to be a running theme. And we see that very much in this episode. It's in this conversation between Elizabeth and Gregory. It's Philip's face when Elizabeth is telling him more about Gregory at the end of the episode. His face is incredible. But anyway, so we're in the scene in Gregory's apartment, their faces are amazing. The body language, the way they use their body language and kind of small expressions and movements to express their intimacy with one another um, and kind of the deepness of their connection and the um, just kind of like the intensity of that. Also amazing. And then the camera is like lingering or spending yeah. a half second or a second too long on oftentimes like their bodies or a place where they had moved to or moved from in that scene. And just all of these little details really just make this so excellent to me. Well, and it's interesting that you talk about the, like the level of intimacy between Elizabeth and Gregory, because I think that comes back in a really powerful and also kind of dangerous way when they're in the safe house in Philadelphia Um, and I think we're so used to, or at least I'm so used to like a few episodes in of like Philip and Elizabeth sort of maybe disagreeing about mission specific stuff, but ultimately like figuring it out, like that that's part of their dynamic, which I find really fascinating. And so there's this moment where, you know, they're trying to figure out what to do with the wife and, and, and they're going back and forth and, and all of that. And then. Gregory sort of like interjects from the side and he's like totally read Elizabeth and it's startling as a new watcher who's used to the, the, the Philip and Elizabeth dynamic and not really used to a third party like coming in. And I think like it speaks to the intimacy between Elizabeth and Gregory that like she has allowed herself to be like 
sort of read in that way. And you start to see exactly what is like enraging Philip about this. Yeah. It's interesting that you called it Gregory reading Elizabeth because he is literally reading a book. Yeah. At the, at, while Philip and Elizabeth yeah. are talking to Joyce, who is the KGB operative's wife. Yeah. I, I don't think we got what he was reading. I'd be fascinated to know what it was Gregory the was reading. The Communist Manifesto? It was, it was too thick. Maybe it was more like the Grundrisse or something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or like the economic manuscripts. <laughs> right, right. Actually, probably lengthwise, the economic manuscripts of 1844 <laughs> would be the right answer. Um, so that, and, and I know one of the things that we've talked about is the way the show is constantly intertwining the domestic and the spycraft. That gets reanimated and shifted in this episode in this yes. scene that you pointed us to because yes. the kind of domestic questions and intimacies this time are not Philip and Elizabeth. They're Philip and Gregory having a conversation yes. where Gregory keeps asking Philip, do you actually love her? Yeah. Right? While, while Philip is doing this special invisible ink sort of technique to reveal the hidden encoded message that Robert, who was the person that was killed um, in the fight in the first episode, had left for Philip and Elizabeth. Well, and so like another layer here, which I, uh, which I think is worth mentioning is like it, we've also talked about the sort of agency like the agency of Elizabeth as a sexual being in sort of like exerting her sexuality as a form of manipulation in the earlier episodes. And this is, and so there's a way that she is sort of taking charge of the like, or, or disrupting or turning on its head, like women as object, an object of the gaze. And there's a way in which like, the tension between Gregory and Philip like reestablishes Elizabeth as like an object of their affection of their, of their emotional or affective economy that like she hasn't necessarily been in, or at least hasn't been in unwillingly up until this point. She becomes almost the, the point through which the male psyches of Philip and yeah. Gregory have to like cathect in yes, order to exactly. work out this love triangle, as you called it. And Elizabeth has going to put up with none of that. She's no. mad at Gregory and mad at Philip for this conversation they have about her while she is tending to Joyce and Joyce's infant child in the next room over oh. behind the closed door. And that then is the leads to like the mirroring scene of if one of the mirroring scenes of that initial Gregory Elizabeth scene that we discussed is mm-hmm. the Gregory Philip scene. Yeah. We then get the final pairing of Elizabeth and Philip is they are arguing 
while they're like walking around trying to decide what to do about Joyce. And they're outside in the dark, but outside it's cold. They're walking around this beat up old car. The blocking of that scene vis-a-vis the dialogue they're having is very, very cool to me. Much like the blocking of how Gregory is walking around the apartment in the scenes with Elizabeth is also fascinating to me. Well, I feel like this is maybe where like the Tommy Schlamy of it all comes in because like one of the, right, one of the like famous things about West Wing, and this isn't necessarily just Schlamy, it's also Aaron Sorkin. It's like West Wing makes popular or coins the walk and talk, right? So one of a famous thing that happens in like every West Wing episode is like two characters are walking through the halls of the White House and the camera is tracking them. And so like that was not something that other like other shows had done. And if you think of like a multicam sitcom, you're not like following along with, you know, it's like they're just cameras. And so I think like the point that you're making about blocking and the sort of like critical role that choreography is playing here john's laughing because choreography is a very important topic in my own research (laughs) and so i was like not gonna miss the chance to talk about it gotta go for it (laughs) but so i think the choreography and the like it doesn't surprise me that in an episode directed by tommy schlamy we get sort of the movement of bodies as a means to, as a a form of like exposition or heightening, right? Which I think that scene when they're outside and they're sort of dancing around each other and around the car, like that's a moment, that's a scene where we're, where their bodies are heightening the tension in, in ways that have already been established through their, through like their, their sort of like vocal interjections. And also that that scene takes place in the dark as well as opposed to this is one of the contrasts with the with the initial gregory scene which takes place in the soft light of his beautiful apartment we should also say gregory's apartment is perfectly decorated did love the couch um couch is great the wallpaper great we stand the wallpaper gregory's apartment we stand um and then the, that, that that scene takes place in the dark is is I think notable, right? Because the brightness, the like emotional brightness of Elizabeth's life seems to often have come more from Gregory than it has from Philip. Yeah, at least until recently, right? And I wouldn't necessarily say that like the emotional brightness is coming from Philip, but it's like it's it's starting to it's it's like Tinder. He's. <laughs> <laughs> she's swiped right no not not that kind of thing <laughs> it's like it's like philip is like included in the halo of light of the emotional brightness yeah yeah, yeah. of uh elizabeth's uh, um tinder <laughs> <laughs> so one of the other things that is notable out of gregory is that he's a black man Right? And Whoa. the show is not ignoring that whatsoever. There's a kind of historical note that we want to uh, get to a little bit later in the show. Yeah. But there's also, I think, Danielle, you've raised in our chats before the show, a contrast with the way the show thinks about race or depicts race or represents race with Gregory than it did with Viola in the previous episode. Yeah. And I think like there's something refreshing about, about these episodes being back to back, because I do think that we left last week's episode being a bit frustrated by the sort of, by the tropiness 
<laughs> to bring back that term, but the tropiness of of sort of the way that the show was dealing with race, the the black woman, no husband, like all of the like the tropes sort of cr- and crashing into each other in a sort of like terrible and maybe even demeaning way. Whereas in this episode, right, the next episode, we get a much more sophisticated and like complex into thinking about the role race plays in, in this set of relationships. And I think it's not, I think it's worth sort of noting that the Gregory relationship, right. Is not a fleeting thing. It's not, this isn't a, a random person we've met in the course of a mission you know, in a one-off episode. It's but not it is Annalise, some... although Annalise will be back, yeah. Yeah, right. But it, It's not Annalise. But, so it's like, it's, I think this episode and sort of like what race is doing in various ways in this episode is the show telling us like, we're willing to engage with like the complicated part of this. Yeah, and there's still that. there's still a little bit of tropiness, right? It's oh, like they have yeah. or a lot, <laughs> or a lot. I mean, like Gregory keeps trying to get Elizabeth to smoke weed with him, just <laughs> like extremely tropey and problematic in various ways. Uh, I mean, it, yes. it makes it makes sense with like the emotional tonality of that the of what the show wants to do with their relationship, to be sure, and isn't also quite tropey. Yeah, I mean, like, Gregory... I feel like the clothing choices for Gregory also feel very tropey, but I I do think, like, the willingness to... I don't know, I think, like, the willingness to explore, like, the political ramifications, which we'll get into a little bit more, right? And the places where the, like, Soviet ideology and various ideologies in America, like, in the 60s and 70s, where those things start to intersect, like, that to me says, like, we're, we're, in, this is more complex than just, like, Black people are our servants, which is, like, kind of the vibe of the, the last episode. So I, at least, at least with that, yeah, could have done without some of the hat choices, but you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the hat choices and like the costuming choices that are made both for Gregory and also the members of his team. Yeah. Although, although one thing to your point earlier, like I think the show is aware of is the way that them as young to middle age, because they're a little bit of variance, black men, the way that they inhabit the physical space of yes. the city, the show is aware of the differences yes. between them and the white FBI agents, let's say in particular, like the contrast of in this like couple of surveillance C scenes yeah. that, that take place, I think does evince some thought and intentionality. Yeah. And, and also I think like we would be remiss to not think about, Gregory and his team and the work that they're doing and sort of linking that back to this question of like power and truth and, and, and all of that juxtaposed to the, like, here's my wife whose last name is Ramirez and we're going to really like, I don't know. The, the joyce of it all was, that was tough for me. Right, who who is Puerto Rican and 
the FBI, several like FBI agents or people attached to the FBI are like making jokes and or yeah. like purposely being incredibly obtuse about the fact that she is Puerto Rican. That yeah. becomes part of me what makes her more suspicious to the FBI. Yes. She did not know what Robert, her uh, now deceased husband, actually did. Right. right. But because she's Puerto Rican, makes her more suspicious from the, in the FBI's eyes. They think she is also a secret undercover agent too. Well, I was having trouble, like, sort of interpreting the end of the episode because I think there's a way to interpret the end of the episode where they're sort of like, oh, well, like, that's what we expect to happen, right? This sort of, like, gruesome drug overdose death, like, shrug emoji. Like, there's a little bit of that with the FBI team, specifically with Stan. And I think, like, Stan is the one who believes that she is this link, and I think others come on board, but doubt him a little bit. And then it's just like, a, okay, well, that didn't work out for us. Here's a dead person. And there's something about that, like, in this discussion of race, that was a little bit challenging for me. Right. And I mean, that particular end of the episode also raises the way in which the show is kind of thematizing secrets and lies in a way even beyond just the spying of the whole yes. thing throughout this yeah. episode. There are several places in which this episode raises the question of truth and who knows what, raises the question of what is out in the open and what is hidden, No, raises the question of who gets to know what, what does Philip know? What do the kids know? Right. in the introduction to Claudia, their new handler who comes in takes place at the diner between Philip and Paige. They're sitting there at the diner, having a good meal. Did they eat hash browns? We don't know. Maybe we don't know, but we can inquire. We can assign producer Amy. We'll call in producer Amy to let us know. Um, Hashtag uh, hash browns. Um, And they're talking about, you know, what Paige is going to wear. They're talking about like Paige's aesthetics. And Philip raises this question of, well, if you do this, uh, your mom's going to know. I don't know how, but somehow she's going to know, right? So there's this way in which Philip is like, you cannot keep a secret from your mother right. just because she's going to know. Obviously, it's because she's a spy. Um, although although how the attention paid to the children continues to be an open question. But it's just, it's just again, the, like, familial scene is actually about spying and knowledge and observation. There's well, a... And, yeah, go for it. Well, no, and I was just going to sort of, like, piggyback on that point about, like, spying and secrets and lies and, and knowledge. Because I think, like, something else that's related to that is, you know, how much are Philip and Elizabeth aware of what's going to happen to Joyce... How much are we as viewers anticipating what happens to Joyce? Mm-hmm. I don't know. There was a part of me that like the minute she came on screen, I was like, well, <sighs> I'll be impressed if she makes it to the end of the episode. Yeah. I think the the surprising part of it for me was that the child was that they, they the child survives. That was kind of an interesting twist um, because I wasn't expecting, if anything, I really wasn't expecting that. Right. Because I I appreciate the narrative structure of that reveal as well, where it is after the scene at which Philip and Elizabeth turn Joyce and the baby over to Claudia. Yeah. And 
Claudia reassures her and is like, we're going to get you to Cuba. Again, there's like the confusion of different Latinx people is thematized again here. Yeah. Right? But Claudia is going to get them to Cuba. Maybe her parents can come visit her eventually. Like everything's going to be fine. Beaches. Yeah, exactly. And then we get some other stuff. We get like the kind of emotional climax of this conversation with Philip and Elizabeth. And then it will cut back to show the child who has been sent to Robert's parents in Donetsk. Um, And I believe actually that's present day Ukraine, if I am remembering correctly, although I might be getting my geopolitics of literally this moment very wrong. Um, And followed by the FBI sees Joyce with her death staged as a heroin overdose. So to your point, Danielle, like what do you think Elizabeth and Philip think is going to happen to Joyce and the baby? Like, because we we don't actually know what they think. We're not given that, but how do you like imagine that as you're trying to examine the psychic and emotional life of these characters? I mean, I think that like, they have to know they've been doing this for so long. Yeah. They know that, that Joyce and like, they know and Gregory knows also, right? And so there's there's some like there's some interesting playing with vulnerability in the back into that scene where there are sort of the three of them or Philip and Elizabeth arguing and then Gregory interjecting about like what to do about Joyce. And like I don't know. Part of me is like, we all know that this is where it's going. Like that's what Gregory's saying, right? He's like, this is what it is. I think if, if Gregory is playing a role beyond sort of for us as viewers thinking about um, the relationship he has with Elizabeth and sort of the tension he raises with Philip, the other role I think he plays for us as the audience is like saying what we're all thinking, Mm -hmm. like, you know, we've already, we're three episodes in somebody dies or almost dies in every single episode. So, you and know. And to go back to our initial conversation, he also does the same thing with regards to Philip or to Elizabeth's feelings towards Philip as well, right? And towards Philip's feeling towards Elizabeth, right? He is not going to let the hidden emotional currents and circulation stay hidden. He wants to right. push them out into the open. And one part of me wonders the extent to which Claudia's show, even though to your point, probably everybody knows that they're going to murder Joyce, yeah, is to give Philip plausible moral deniability because they know yes. he's the one who wavers. Yes, and I absolutely, and I think that we, I think like to go back to a point you were making earlier about the the face acting, I think like we can read on their faces that they know. But we also know from this episode that it's important that they are a- that Philip at least is able to tell himself a different story. Yeah. One undercurrent of the past few minutes is the introduction of Claudia as a character yeah. in this episode, played by Margot Martindale. Um, what do you make of Claudia and the narrative structure? into which or through which she enters the show? Well, I really was like, the minute she appeared on screen and she has that interaction with Philip and Paige, I was like, I I wrote down, okay, who is this lady in the diner? Someone important. And then because, later... Because you recognize Margot Martindale or just because of 
Clearly, if they're showing that, it has a meaning. Clearly, if they're showing this interaction, it's going to have meaning. So, like, I wrote down, like, who's this lady at the diner? Someone important. New Gabriel, question mark. And then really what was, like, did I miss something huge in the last couple of episodes? Like, who is Gabriel? So I... This was a little bit challenging, but, like, one thing that it did was it sort of... There's a lot of presumption made about what you should already know. And so you're just like, okay, maybe I missed it. Like, I'm on board. I know that this woman's important. And, like, something's up here. Right. And the, we we have not met or, I believe, probably even heard of Gabriel <laughs> at this point in <laughs> The Americans in Episode 3. All we know is that he was their previous handler. That's the only direct knowledge that we get from this episode. Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts uh, and feelings about Gabriel, which we will save for some time in, you know, four years from now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... But you're right. And, you know, and one of the things I think you tied it to in our conversation, Danielle, was that it's part and parcel of this idea that there are going to be more risks yes. and something has to change. Yes. And Claudia even says, you know, the world is changing. I'm going to be a little bit more hands-on or yeah. my style is a little more hands-on in running my agents. What she says literally while Philip has his hands on her because yeah. – She's uh, been following him exactly. and he – has obviously picked up the trace, which again, like she knew that he was going to do, yep. right? Like, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. like, there is interesting stuff that I think we're just going to keep talking about, like as the, as the season and as the seasons and the series go, goes on, like there's interesting stuff happening with like truth, power, um, knowledge. Like there's just, at, you know, at some point in one of these episodes, we're just going to have to dig into Foucault and we'll feel <laughs> great about it. Um, I think we'll, we'll have to save that. But it's coming. The wave is coming. <laughs> yeah. I have one more kind of big picture thought that touches on the Claudia point and on these kinds of truth and lies question okay. before we maybe get into segments. Yeah. And that is the way that they shoot the two surveillance scenes of Joyce in quote unquote Philadelphia <laughs> and the way we'll in which that. the camera itself functions as a kind of spy yeah. or engaging in its own spy craft. And, you know, as I believe we even briefly mentioned in the last episode, that's a kind of obvious point to go to in a spy show. But I think that the Americans does that somewhat sparingly or calls attention to it sparingly yeah. enough that it's worth noticing and thinking about. And I appreciate the way that they do it. And I, and I just think that the way that they shoot um, that particular, particularly the first surveillance scene is just amazing the and when you're talking about the first surveillance scene it's like in philadelphia when they are sort of circling joyce like yeah, that. They're, all, yeah. they're all circling joyce or the fbi is and then so we we get the camera following gregory and his yes. following gregory yeah. watching his team watch the fbi agents yeah, and I think like we're gonna want to come. I want to put a pin in a pin in this because I think we're gonna want to come back to thinking about the camera and like the way in which the camera invites the audience in and also hides things from the audience, right? Mm -hmm. Like that. That and I think like I at least you know three episodes in, I'm on board with you that like they seem to use the use that idea sparingly here in ways that when it is obvious that that's sort of like 
what's happening, we are sort of like made to pay attention. All right. I want to make a less graceful segue from deep discussions of cinematography <laughs> to borrowed nostalgia for the unremembered 80s, if you will have that. I will definitely have it. I still have no idea what this is in <laughs> reference to. I'll continue I, to say that. I want to say, Danielle, I appreciate your commitment to the podcast to not have Googled <laughs> it yet, because as as much as I care about you in this show, I probably would have Googled it at this point if I were you know, in your position. So I think I the on air, I think the on air reveal when someone fu- comes on and knows <laughs> what it is, and I'm going to be like, oh god, of course, or like, whoa, like I just, I just, I don't want to rob us of that. I think you're giving my uh, wonderful but incredibly <laughs> pretentious segment name a lot more credit than it's worth. But you know, what I would love you pretension. like to give credit? What would you like to give credit to for the '80s vibes of the episode, Gregory? I need to talk about Paige's bangs, Floor's like yours. so much. 80s are just bangs, like bangs, bangs, <laughs> bangs, bangs, bangs. And like they're, listen, these bangs are not like the most aggressive and hair gel and hairspray, but like Paige is young. She's like just creeping into her rebellious phase, right? Like she's just getting there. But like the minute that there is a woman with bangs on the screen, I am like, we are in the 80s. Like that's that's where we are. We might as well be in Teen Witch. Like, we're in the 80s. (laughs) So Paige is reading the magazine Girls World, uh, which apparently did, in fact, exist. And on the cover of it is Nancy, excuse me, Nancy McKeon from The Facts of Life. I was not a Facts of Life watcher, were you, Danielle? Yes, I was. You take the good, you take the bad, you take it all, and there you have the facts of life. Anyway, I have seen every episode of The Facts of Life. I have, like, serious – I could do a whole podcast series on my thoughts about The Facts of Life, so I'm going to spare you of those. But when you reminded me that Nancy McKeon was on the the cover, I got so excited. So what I do appreciate is that we get these, like, real-world references that as a child of the 80s speaks to me. Yes. Um the cars had a particular 80s vibes. There's a lot of yeah. <laughs> brown sedans from the 80s in this show. Which, which has been true of the whole of yeah. the whole first few episodes and the car that they are using to get to quote unquote Philadelphia and becomes their main <laughs> transport is just prime 80s brown sedan style. Well, and, like, I think I had – I can't remember if I mentioned this just to you in our regular friendship or to you on air on our <laughs> podcast, <laughs> but my grandfather had, like, a Lincoln Continental um, that, like, also was, like, a big sedan like these that had, like, a – you know, the number lock on the outside of the door that just, like, is so nostalgic for my childhood. <laughs> you know, by the time I was a little bit older, they, like, had a tourist station wagon. It was, like – but that car and just like the ashtrays in the in the like doors like just feels really 80s so the cars on screen here like really does put me back in like the late 80s 
you at love, least. You love to see it. We get a cool music cue in this episode. There, there are several music cues, but the one at the end of the episode is Roxy Music's Sunset. Which, if I remember correctly, there will be more Roxy Music in our future okay. here on The Americans. Although I did look it up, and the song Sunset does come from the 70s. So it's several years old at the point at which this episode is taking place in roughly 1981. But it did fit the vibe of the episode, so it I appreciate very that. very strongly fit the vibe. Roxy Music, definitely in the Tusk-era Fleetwood Mac zone of Americans' mm. musical Done. stones. <laughs> Amazing. Should we shift into uh, my minor character of the week? I believe we should. So my minor character of the week is Gregory's team and specifically the team member who is like on, like is made by the FBI and then like on the run. I just, I just really, I appreciated the way like he used the city to his advantage. I appreciated the way that, but also just like how obvious he was (laughs) each time Mm -hmm. there was something like, so cliche spy show about it that like made me excited about this character. So I hope we, I hope we see him again. Um, I'm trying to, I don't remember if we do or not quite honest, but uh, I don't know if we ever got his name in the episode, but apparently the character's name is Paul played by Isaiah Stokes. Amazing. I, I, two thumbs up, two thumbs up for Isaiah Stokes. Wonderful. Um, I believe that I need to clear out some space so that you can articulate some concerns you have coming out of the Daniel dossier. The Daniel dossier this week, folks, is once more asking some questions about like Elizabeth's skills of manipulation. And I, this episode, you know, I, a couple of episodes ago was talking about, whether it, you know, she really loves Philip, is that is this really happening? And I think this is another episode where we can read this through our conspiracy theory glasses <laughs> and think about, well, she's doubling down on this. Like, cutting ties, or at least cutting romantic ties with Gregory, like, does serve, could serve a purpose in, like, adding another layer of manipulation to what's going on between her and Philip, which I still do not think is fully authentic. So like, that's my first thing. Can I, can I jump in there? Yeah. And and we get the way the show gets into that and asks us to raise that very question. I is, is a, is a nice trick that it plays on us because in the scene in which they're fighting while they're like walking around the car in the dark in Philadelphia, um, you know, Philip raises the question of, well, were you running operations against me? Yes. Yes. And then 15 minutes runtime later, we get the conversation at four in the morning around the kitchen table back in the Jennings residence where Elizabeth talks about her relationship and her romance and her passion with Gregory and said, you know, we never had that but I feel like it's starting to happen now or something to that effect. Well, yeah. And I think like, I think this is a little bit earlier, but, but she says, what does lying even mean to us? So <laughs> I, I think like the, if, if there's a, the, if I have a thesis for this conspiracy theory of mine, it's like that it's that Elizabeth's like 
level ability to manipulate Philip is off the charts and that there's something else in play here that we haven't quite like we haven't figured out. I don't know. There's also something about the fact that like Philip's the one that meets with Claudia in the first place that like got my hackles up, (laughs) got my conspiracy theory hackles up. I have another question for the Daniel dossier. Yeah. What, what what is the deal with the kids? What, no, what is I, happening with our friends Henry and Paige while the parents are out helping be accessories to spy murder in Philadelphia? These kids are either the stupidest kids in the entire world or they absolutely 1 million percent know what's going on. Who's watching these kids when their parents have to go on a an emergency travel agent <laughs> trip? Come on. It's the 80s. Like, like there are computers, there are phones. No, but it's not like today where you're like, I booked a flight, I'm getting on it in two hours. Like, that's not the vibe of the of eighties travel. Okay, it's true. It's so true. yeah. What's going on with the kids? I, they know that's what's going on with the kids. Because how long are Philip and Elizabeth actually in Philadelphia with Joyce? Does that all take place in the span of one? afternoon evening middle of the night probably i guess who's with the the kids kids. right who they don't have any family that's the whole thing that's the point is one of their travel agent worker people there like (laughs) if so where did they where does that person think they are like who's with the kids who's with the kids because all we know is that they get back and elizabeth says no point in getting sleep the kids will be up in an hour the kids are already awake because they know that you're not there and they're having a party in the house. Like what, I guess like part of my question, we're creeping towards Paige being like a little bit rebellious. Like I'm, I'm seeing that. And I think that that, that I suspect will be something interesting to engage with as the seasons go on. And we sort of Paige gets older, but like, when do these kids start having parties? <laughs> like, I don't know. Listen, I, I there's a lot of suggestive questions I want to ask that would that would hint at spoilers, so I will not. Okay, one last thing on this point though, Please. and and I appreciate you keeping the spoilers inside just like you appreciate me not googling uh <laughs> the title. Um, but like one last thing I just want to say is that listen, I knew that my mom hid the Christmas presents in the closet. <laughs> Where do these kids, how have these kids not, like, happened upon the medical supply? These people are buying, like, medical supplies from, like, Costco. So, like, like, and if the parents aren't there, of course you're looking every, like, I just, (laughs) there's a part of this that's, like, just not believable to me. And it, 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 honestly, when I think about the kids, it takes me out of it. (laughs) Okay. You know, I'm. I think me. The show's doing okay. If the biggest qualm that Danielle, who I think is very attentive to plot, I would say in general, um, has found so far is like, what's why haven't the kids snooped in the parents' bedroom, uh, parents' bathroom yet? Which is where I, which is where we will later find out some of the medical supplies are. And also, like, who's Gabriel? But (laughs) also, also, who's Gabriel? But I I think that's a little bit (laughs) playing with the reveal and knowledge questions yeah, that yeah, you and yeah. I are very closely interested in. <laughs> Amazing. 
we've got oh. we've got one more segment, two more segments. We've got two, two more, more segments. segments to go. All right, we're getting there. So now into our segment gloss, where we're just these are just some like odds and ends that we are still puzzling over. So John, do you want to get, get us started? I very much do. I want to return us to an important scene, an important physical <laughs> space in the world of the Americans, and that is the fucking racquetball court because we after. I wanted. I forgot when I brought up the racquetball conversation between Philip and Stan last week. Mm-hmm. That in the very next next episode, we actually open open on racquetball between Stan and Philip. Two important observations. Three important observations about the racquetball scene. Okay, right? I got notes here. Number Love one. It. They literally talk about how it's not about power or speed. It's about strategy, which definitely has nothing to do with the fact that one of them is a KGB spy and one of them works for the FBI. And one of them knows and the other one doesn't. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Observation number two, Philip looks fucking amazing in his, like, tight black tank top. Stan looks like a fucking dweeb in his, like, racquetball polo, which tracks this totally tracks and also go ahead never like have they let matthew reese be hot until (laughs) the opening scene of episode three but i also feel like this is like one of the most 80s pieces of it which is like 80s fashion was either like you are hot in it or you look like a dumpy garbage truck man. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, like, the same goes for women. Like, some women look, like, amazing with, like, shoulder pads and sequins and this and that. And some people just look like a, a like, birthday cake threw up on them. And, and yeah. like, such is the nature of 80s fashion. So I feel like I love that this is the moment that Matthew Reese got hot because, like, he just, like, came into himself in the in this 80s fashion. Right. In part because we like get to see that he is like lively jacked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because he's wearing <laughs> the tank top um, in this episode. Probably enough time talking about uh, Philip in the tank top. Okay. Third observation. Or not. <laughs> or not we, can <laughs> we can linger here. Uh, third observation. A nice like trick of television making. The way that that scene ends is Stan walks out the glass doors of the racquetball room. We get a cut direct to Stan walking into the glass doors of the FBI office. So just like a nice, oh, here is how we decided to make this cut from one scene to the next. That is a much more sophisticated take than what I'm about to say. So I appreciate that because I think you're right. Here are my I just like I I, I I had to balance the like yeah. Philip looked really good in the tank top with a cinematography observation. This is a bull fan podcast. It is, it sure <laughs> is. Here's what I want to say about the racquetball scene. One, the short shorts. It's like short shorts, yeah. I can't believe we forgot to talk about short shorts in the the eighties nostalgia section because like this episode opens on like the most eighties nostalgia of it all. However, there's a real missed opportunity for sweatbands here. And I want some sweatbands. So I'm like on sweatband watch 2022. Okay. I hope we get them. Um, I, <laughs> we also should point out that much like there's this, it's about strategy, not power or speed is made part of the racquetball scene. So too is the fact that Stan is wearing all white and that Philip is wearing a black tank. Yes. Right. Uh, we love it. So that's there. Do you, do you, what's, what's a gloss observation you'd like to 
put on the table. Can we talk about the Philly of it all? I, I, I was hoping you would want to talk about <laughs> the Philadelphia of it all. So Danielle lived for a while in Philadelphia. For like a million years. And <laughs> so listeners, you already know that I come to all of these episodes with a little bit of a like suspicious eye, which is great for watching a spy show. And really True. like on the one hand, I'm I'm here, I'm trying to figure out like who is Elizabeth really manipulating Who's she running and and to what end? On the other hand, I'm also here to figure out, like, are they in Philly? And, like, they're not. They are one million. I was like, there's no part of Philly that, like, is just a bustling neighborhood under a bridge like this. <laughs> I know what part of Philly this is supposed to be. It's not under a bridge. It's under the L, and that looks different, and this is not Philly. Yes. And so this raises a broader question about the scene of the Americans, it's a hundred percent shot in New York City, right? Either on whatever soundstage they were using or on location. Mm-hmm. And uh, Danielle went to grad school and lived in Philadelphia. I went to grad school and lived in <laughs> yeah. New York City. So I am a hundred percent always on alert while watching the Americans. For I think they are in this neighborhood. Yeah. I'm pretty sure this is where they shot that episode. Why did I never come across them shooting the Americans during my time there? These are the things that run through my mind we get uh, uh uh it's 117th street i'm guessing on the east we're like on lexington perhaps uh when they're shooting quote unquote in philly those outdoor open air yeah. scenes and i think where the chess scene where elizabeth first mm-hmm. approaches gregory while he's playing chess yeah. with uh with his friends could perhaps be some of the uh, chess tables or chess benches around Washington Square Park because there's a particular graffiti wall behind them that looks like it's one of the graffiti walls that encloses one of the basketball courts at Washington Square Park. So those are my, here's where I think they shot this in New York City observations. And we're meant to think that they're in like, they're in Northeast DC in in the chess scene, right? Like that that's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's going to be a lot of this, like, you're definitely eagle-eyed with, with regards to New York. And I'm like, don't pretend to be in Philly and not be in, like, come, <laughs> come on, everyone. Or be in a generic, like, neighborhoody part where it could be in any city and it's probably in Toronto because that's, like, <laughs> the TV of it all. Right. Uh, right. Um, another glass point to raise is... A historical question about how Elizabeth and Gregory actually met, right? So in the span of the conversation that Elizabeth has with Philip, she says, oh, I went to SCLC's, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference meetings. That's where I met Gregory. We marched together, right? Et cetera, et cetera. Right. Okay, fine. That scans. That raises the question, though, for me, at least, as to why it, it seems that SNCC would be a much more fertile ground if you are the KGB, if you are the Soviet Union, wanting to recruit black radicals to your cause. So it's an interesting historical moment that they were recruiting from King's organization, King and many others, of course, organization, according to Elizabeth, rather than SNCC. Um, yeah. So, so I totally see your, the question you're raising here. And I think it's a, it's a valid question. Here's like maybe a different way to think about it, which is if we think about, 
you know, King and his followers and, you know, SNCC and, and the membership there, right. As like different, put them like different, um, shades of radical, right. Of like a radical politics, a radical black politics. I think there is a way to understand that Elizabeth was, was sort of at these meetings where there are these followers of King, because part of, I think what's happening here, right. Is that the Soviets are interested in their own radicalizing. So they're interested in those who are like, open to a different set of ideas, but perhaps not already radicalized for another cause. So maybe this is just like being at these other meetings and not SNCC looking for those who seem like they could be like turned in a particular way. Yeah. A totally plausible historical interpretation. I should note, I screwed up the timing of that reveal in the episode. That's Mm -hmm. all actually something that Gregory says to Philip rather than Elizabeth says to Philip um, is point number one. And point number two, one of the reasons that I think that that is is a possible historical explanation that we have made the show have to answer for in the course of our episode is that we know that J. Edgar Hoover was doing really shady, horrible (laughs) shit to both organizations (laughs) at the same time. So it's not like there's a strategic rationale like, oh, we could get away with it in one but not the other because J. Edgar Hoover was being one of the worst people in American history to both organizations. Yeah. And I think just like one last point on that, which is, I think the Hoover point is really important, but I think the other, it's not important. Other, I just wanted to make fun of. Jennifer oh, Hoover I mean, I allude to, I feel like, Pro, like that's no. important, <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like the other thing, and this is like, I think some of our fellow political theorists would be frustrated if we didn't mention something like this, which is that King is often read as the like moderate, and, and and only moderate, but like there are actually his ideas are are sort of oftentimes whitewashed to seem more quote unquote moderate than perhaps they were. And so like I think that fits into the the explanation that we've offered here, which is like people at those meetings might very well be open to the kind of radicalization that that like sort of the KGB was was itself interested in but it maybe it isn't the historic the dominant historical narrative that we've gotten in the same way precisely I have one more gloss but before I go to there do you want to you want to run any more gloss by me no. What's your last gloss? I'm the last gloss is that amidst all of what we've talked about, there's also the pushing forward of the ballistic missile defense Star Wars. Oh my God. Thread. We haven't even talked um, about this. <laughs> exactly. So that's why we have to make sure we get to it in, glo- in gloss. Um, so in the midst of all of this, they discover that Robert has been meeting with somebody who is going to provide secret plans about something, which we find out is prototypes and blueprint, or I should say blueprints for Reagan Star Wars Strategic Defense Initiative Ballistic Missile Defense Shield System. And in order to do that, Philip's got to peace out from the house with Joyce and the baby and Elizabeth and Gregory, get accosted by Claudia. He then has to go to some secret meet while all everything else is happening in good glasses. We like his glasses. We like his glasses. We like the beanie um, in this episode. And it like, there are clearly like 
quasi amateurs like maybe there's some organized crimes uh, illusions happening he goes into a basement he gets like has to have his knife and his little ankle holster yeah. taken away and then is brought into essentially a cage in this basement with this weird ass guy and then what happens daniel and the part of this scene that i loved was philip being like can you get out of my blind spot just like kind of seeming like meek and like this is an this is a fun sort of like juxtaposition to the like muscular Philip we got in the <laughs> in the first scene because he's like can you get out of my blind spot like and he's just like clutching the briefcase and then he beats the shit out of these guys and the money flies all over like all over there's the this cinematography in this scene with the money and the and the fight and like the and ah oh, i just feel like this philip was a, the it was like a slimy philip but mm-hmm. it was like slime meets slime and yeah. philip came out on top he did get a gash in his he did get a know. gash in his side <laughs> um why does dad ha- why is dad bleeding from his side <laughs> <laughs> good good observation henry good observation all right so should we go to the final final segment of the day yes so let us descend into the cave which into i feel like cave. is is apt after like philip descended into the cave so right. there's stuff there but we're going to put pause on the plato <laughs> metaphors <laughs> for a moment And today we want to talk a little bit about, or we want to bring in a feminist thinker, Iris Marion Young, who's one of the greats, RIP, Um, and some of her work on the city and justice to help us think a bit about the spatiality, the sort of like the spaces and places and the public the publicness of these spaces that the different characters and teams are moving through and the way in which the characters are sort of using the city. I think for young, the city is a, is a, um, is a place where you meet people who are not like you, right? Where you meet and interact and develop relationships with people who are not exactly like you. And one of the things that's important for young is this idea of difference and how do we overcome difference to establish like these relationships. And I think she wants to think about that on the one hand through the city and what that invites us to do. And I think there's, we've sort of touched on it a couple of times already in this episode, thinking about the places and the staging and the movement. So I think young is sort of an apt, uh, an apt thinker for us to turn to, to think a little bit more about sort of what's happening with space and place here and how that's impacting these broader relationships, but also these questions of truth and probably, and ultimately power. Yeah, especially Um, in the way, Daniel, that's an excellent setup, I think, for our cave discussion. Um, And you particularly use the phrase that we could think about young in relation to how the characters use the city. Yeah. And that, I think, is really, really on point framing because 
we get a sense of who is in fact able to use the city because they have some sense through experience, through knowledge, through thinking about it, um, even in a different city, right? They're quote unquote in Philadelphia as opposed to in quote unquote Washington, D.C. But Gregory's team, right? Team of all black men. I don't think Mm -hmm. there's maybe, is there one black woman in his team? Maybe, but not one who's doing driving or right. or moving. Right. right. So it's his team that is able to figure out, okay, this is Joyce. This is the person that, like, is being surveilled. Right. This is how the FBI is running their surveillance. We understand the way that people act and engage with space and engage with other people right. in physical space in a city. And these FBI people are so obvious when via the camera work, we get to see Gregory yes. and his team seeing the FBI who hypothetically should have like Weberian, you know, monopoly on the use of force power over the yeah, city, yeah. but they actually don't know how to engage with the city. They're incredibly obvious. And that's just in the first of the two major surveillance right. scenes. Well, and I think like just to build on that, right? Like, the on the one hand there's the incredibly obvious of it all on the on the other hand right there's perhaps we walk into that first scene with the expectation like or the tension that oh no the FBI is going to figure it out right yeah. it's going to the FBI is going to figure this FBI team is yeah they're being obvious but like they're the FBI so like they're smart they have this monopoly on power on surveillance but yet they don't and so that gets heightened in the second scene where there is this sort of like masterful use of not only um not only space but the the way the the flows that move in that space right all of this sort of hinges on a truck pulling out at the right t- like mm-hmm. and it's their truck but like there's something there's something really powerful about about that there is particularly because there's a there's also like a class element there right like the FBIA agents some of them who are trying to blend in in fact look out of place because they're dressed incorrectly um, for the neighborhood that they're in. And yeah. then it's like the uh, simulacrum of a working class flow, to use your word, right? This produce truck going from one place to the next and blocking the intersection, right? It's the interdiction of like the working class vehicle of labor that blocks the FBI from maintaining their surveillance and is what enables Gregory and his team to spirit away Joyce forcibly. Yeah, and if we come back to, like, young and this question of difference and the way in which the city invites those who are different to sort of, like, come together, like, this, these two scenes, like, disrupt that, right? Because the the FBI comes in, their difference, their, their like, quote-unquote dominance, their race, their class positions, all of these are so obvious, and they are making no effort to engage with and move with these layers of difference that actually might invite them to see the city differently and like pick up on the dynamics that are unfolding, which like to us, it's like, oh, thank God they're unfolding this way because this is fun and interesting and this is what we're looking for. Yep. But also like, 
it pulls the tension out of it a little bit too. It sure does. That was a that was a great visit to the cave. We were a oh. little bit concerned about the cave this episode, I think, and I'd, I'd say we made it out, yeah, and back in and back out again. I think Young was a good companion in the cave. Yeah, as as <laughs> usually. So as Danielle knows, because she helped me brainstorm the syllabus last <laughs> year. Um, the way that I set up my justice class is we read a, the first couple chapters of Justice and the Politics of Difference, and then we go to Plato. So it's it's quite apt as well for our pedagogical friendship. Listen, uh, in addition we- to the cave and the Americans. <laughs> We did it without being conscious of it, which also seems pretty, like, on point for us. <laughs> exactly right. Um, <sighs> thanks for joining us, listeners, on another episode. Um, it's not quite great books. A TV a podcast. TV podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, thank you to producer Amy. Thank and we'll see you Amy. next time for American Season 1, Episode 4, In Control. A very history-specific, contextualized episode. And, uh, that's, and that's it from us. And uh, until next time, listeners. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast, which is created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and kind of indirectly by the mythical producer Amy. You can email us questions you might like us to discuss on air to notgreatbookstv at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at notgreatbookstv. Tell your friends about us, like, subscribe, leave reviews, leave ratings. You know what to do at this point in your podcasting lives and journeys. You have heard Electrotrend's 60s from Less FM at the beginning and the end of the episode. Stay tuned next time when we talk about Season 1, Episode 4 of The Americans, In Control. Until then, bye!